to another episode of the Five Things I Read This Week podcast. This is episode number 38, and today is June 2nd, 2018. I'm your host, as always, Zach Schmal. The Five Things I Read This Week podcast is a division of Entering the Public Square, a blog founded on the sincere belief that every Christian should understand the importance of discussing Christianity in the marketplace of ideas. You can find us online at enteringthepublicsquare.com. You can also find this podcast in the iTunes store or the Google Play store. So it would be great if you would go subscribe, check it out, you know, leave some feedback, give me some reviews, let me know what you like, what you don't like, what could be better. I'd really appreciate it. So today on the podcast, I don't really have a theme for you. I try to normally hit my articles kind of thematically consistent, but the five articles I found this week are not, maybe we'll find a common thread as we go, but here at the beginning, as I'm reviewing them, I don't see it right now, so unless I hit hit with some kind of inspiration mid-show, I think it'll be a little bit random. So we're going to start out from the New York Times, this is from May 26th. It was written by Frank Bruni, Aristotle's Wrongful Death. So, it's no surprise what we see at a lot of colleges where the liberal arts are getting, well, diminished or eliminated. You hear about philosophy departments that are leaving, history departments that are being cut, and we hear a lot more about data analytics and computer science, more professionally based career paths, more obvious direct to career options. Now, for someone like me, who's getting his PhD in liberal arts, this is kind of sad. I mean, our PhD in humanities is basically a liberal arts curriculum. So to hear about liberal arts in general going downhill, it makes me sad, obviously. But here's here's what Bernie, his point is right on, and this is what I want to highlight. I worry that the current conversation about majors is part of a larger movement to tug college too far in a vocational direction. Now, what is this this larger movement? Well, he goes on to explain. Colleges needn't abandon majors in general, or supposedly are hand majors in particular in order to propel graduates into the workforce. They could do better at encouraging and arranging something that they already promote and that savvy students already embrace, which is a considered concerted use of research projects, extracurricular activities, part-time employment, internships and networking to set up first jobs. Colleges needn't abandon majors in order to give students breadth and nimbleness. That's what general education requirements are for. So why don't more colleges expand or toughen those? That would additionally help to create shared experiences and common points of reference in a dangerously fractured society. So let's just camp out here for a while. The whole article is great, you should read it, but we have this dichotomy, right? You can have a professional degree, or you can have more of a liberal arts degree. 
And a lot of people believe it's an either-or. Bernie is suggesting that maybe it doesn't have to be. Rather than turn the emphasis entirely over and ditch the liberal arts, all in the means of just learning, more programming, more accounting, more data analytics, more even nursing, more physical therapy or occupational therapy, more of these direct-to-career tracks. Rather than concentrating them more heavily and abandoning the liberal arts, why don't colleges actually do a little better at getting their students out there? So why don't they help give opportunities for student research, provide leadership opportunities and extracurriculars, help them find relevant jobs, part-time or internships that will help build the network that will hit these students out into the field. But the problem, of course, is that we oftentimes think that by pushing people to do more and more and more specialized skills, we're going to improve their chances of landing that first job. And in reality, I don't know that that's the case. So this movement to more heavily vocationalize the entire college and ditch the liberal arts won't have the desired effect. The effect it will have, and Bruni points this out right at the end, and it's kind of a sub-point in his article, but I think it's really important that the liberal arts give us shared experiences and common points of reference. Isn't it great when there's a movie that everyone seems to have watched? It may not be an amazing movie, but you can talk about the movie. For people of my generation, who were kids when I was a kid, when we were in school, we would talk about movies that we all watched. But somehow, as we advanced to adulthood, it didn't so much matter that we all watched Mighty Ducks when we were children. Because now our media choices are severed. People are all over the map, and we don't really have that common framework of adult culture. We understand when we're kids, and we have a lot of shared um, touch points, but we lose that as we get older. So college might be a great time to develop these shared experiences, to help build these frames of reference with high-level intellectual discussions, exploring difficult topics. And that's what general education is for. That's why colleges traditionally have leaned on the liberal arts. It's not just to fill your schedule and make you pay more money. It's to help you gain a breadth of understanding about what it really means to be an active participant in society, to be able to have these cultural discussions. So, all in all, Bruni's article is a very strong uh, poll that emphasizes the need to embrace the liberal arts and not stray too far towards only professional majors at the cost of the liberal arts. It may not have all the benefits people imagine it might have. And on the other side, we may be losing some important things that we would rather have. So this article was written on May 26th in the New York Times by Frank Bruni, Aristotle's Wrongful Death. Moving on to the imaginative conservative, this article 
It was written by Allison Burr on May 28th. And it's entitled, Children Under Siege in the Digital Age. So if you think about, I don't know about you, but when you think back to your childhood, I, I've had a computer most of my life. I like to play video games for a lot of my life. Um, but the technology that exists now in 2018 is a whole lot different than anything I grew up with. And it's a whole lot different than any of you who are older than me certainly grew up with. So this article by Burr is really just, okay, so in the digital age, children aren't being children anymore. And why not? So she highlights a bunch of important things. For example, children don't wander out in creation anymore. We don't appreciate nature because we're tied to all of our devices. The irony, of course, is that I recorded this podcast using a device and you are listening to it with a device. But I digress. She talks about things like artificial sound and how you know, there's all kinds of dings and buzzes and vibrates. We don't really know what they are, but we respond to them. We're like Pavlov's dogs, you know? You hear the ding and you have to check your phone. Why? Because we've been conditioned to check our phone. Art and literature have gone downhill. I think that goes without saying. Our language, perhaps, has deteriorated. I don't think it's hard to agree with that either. Consider how English has truly suffered as a result of texting. People can't spell. And they also have a hard time putting together coherent sentences. Then, speaking about the elimination of free time, now this is a big one for me because I like to be busy. I don't know about you, but there's a lot to do, there's a lot to get done, and I'm gonna get it done. It's what I do. Of course, that doesn't leave much free time. And I'm always finding more things and more ways to kind of add in my one more thing that I really have to do. Oh, yeah, if I just had 10 more minutes. Oh, I have 10 minutes. Okay, well, I'm going to do this now. So there's really no true free time. I can relate to that. And finally, she brings up irrational socialization, which is really, we don't know how to relate to each other anymore. I mean, at the end of the day, we have a hard time even knowing what to say without offending someone, without harming someone, without triggering someone. I mean, it really is a, it's a hard world to socialize in. And so her point is, you know, what, what do we do with our children? Because they're growing up in this, and it's a lot different than when you or I were experiencing these same uh, challenging times. Um, there were a lot of there were a lot of problems, of course, in all era of you know, human existence. We've all had our own unique struggles, but the digital age presents a unique set. And so, as parents, I think that really uh, I think that it's important to watch out for these kinds of things and not let your child get swept away. 
relate to your child, help your child, overcome these challenges. Because I think it will be to their benefit, and ultimately to the family's benefit as well. So this was written by Alison Burr for the Imaginative Conservative on May 28th. It was entitled, Children Under Siege in the Digital Age. Now, I don't know if you heard, Ireland legalized abortion. Sad. And so there were a lot of articles about about Ireland, and I found one on the Federalist. It was written on May 30th by Kenny Zhu, and it's entitled, How Legalizing Abortion Undermines the Basis for a Free Society. So obviously, it was a landslide. Ireland voted yes in a vast majority. And so Zhu, his point is that we have an obligation, this is a quote, we have an obligation to the unborn because though they are fully and completely human, they are also those with the least self-sufficiency in liberal democratic society. They cannot vote, they cannot participate in a referendum to determine whether they should be expunged from their mother's womb, they cannot advocate for themselves in even the basic way in which every other human in the world can. The fact of their inability to participate fully in society, not their lack of human dignity, but their lack of political awareness, reinforces the need for the rest of society to step in on their behalf, to be advocates on their behalf. Now, this is a big point, right? Because if they are human, if they are people, then they obviously don't have voices. And if they don't have a voice to speak up for themselves, who else is going to do it if you and I don't? If people like Kenny Zhu don't? If we, if we really have a, uh, a desire to support the rights of all, including the unborn, then why would we not speak up? It's a challenge. I mean, for me, for you, but you can see the logic. If this is indeed a if this is indeed a person, and if we truly are a free society that values the rights of the individual, then what is more undemocratic than making a decision about someone? a person without his or her consent. That's the ultimate in government imposition. And it's the ultimate in human imposition when other people are making life decisions, literally life terminating decisions, on behalf of another person. So I, I appreciated Henry Zhu's point. This is a great article. It's from The Federalist, published on May 30th, How Legalizing Abortion Undermines the Basis for a free society. We need that human dignity, we need that personhood, or else self-government really has no base. Now, an interesting change of pace for you, because I'm gonna talk about NARAL, which is a pro-choice group. And I found this article on Vox on May 30th, 
A pro-abortion rights group is asking candidates if they've been accused of sexual harassment. This article was written by Lee Zhou. So NARAL, Pro-Choice Massachusetts, one of the state arms of this national organization, is sending out a survey to candidates. And one of the questions on that survey is, have you ever been formally accused of sexual harassment? If so, please explain. So a lot of lobbying groups do this kind of thing, right? So that they can make their voter guide. They send out surveys and they want candidates to respond. There's a variety of them, but I'm sure you've seen them before. Now, it's fascinating because this questionnaire sent out by NARAL, supposedly the information is going to remain confidential. And according to NARAL, here's a quote from the article, emphasized that saying yes might not be disqualifying, although operatives have expressed their skepticism about the likelihood of keeping such details under wraps. So, you're going to enter yes, and then somehow it's going to leak and your career will be over, even if the, they said it would be confidential. Now, this is a tough discussion, right, to have in America today. Obviously, there's a major problem with harassment. I mean, Me Too has made that abundantly clear, and if you don't see that, you have really no awareness of the culture. Clearly, a lot of really bad stuff has been going on for a really long time, and people were afraid or hesitant or whatever else to speak about it. Now they feel more empowered and more confident in doing so, and that's great. I mean, it, it is a... It's good when justice ultimately comes around, right? Now, the challenge, though, this question speaks about someone who's been formally accused of harassment. And so, just as an example, let's say I ran a company and someone formally accused me and it turned out to be entirely false. There was some ulterior motive that led this person to want to accuse me for whatever reason. I never did anything, let's say, but this person brought charges. Now, I would have to answer yes. And then I'd explain, you know, hey, I didn't do anything, but my former employee brought charges and, um, you know, they were proven false, all of that. Now, in our cultural moment right now, for this politician, let's say, I mean, he ultimately did nothing wrong. But if it gets out that he said yes, he's been accused, what do you want to bet that the rest of the story doesn't come out? Given our gotcha media culture, someone will take the story that John Doe, a Senate candidate, was accused of harassment. Never mind that it was entirely frivolous and the whole thing went away without incident. See, it's hard, right? Because there are times, obviously, where 
a formal accusation is a big deal, like when it happened. There are other times where accusations are made formally, and yet they have no merit. I'm not saying it's a majority. I'm not saying we don't believe people who are accusing. What I am saying is that we need to investigate and we need to understand you know, when these situations are actually actually happening, condemn the people who do them because it is evil. We don't harass people. Why would we do that? It, it shouldn't be what we do. And America really should be better than it obviously is. Me Too has made that so clear. That we really shouldn't we shouldn't be having this conversation, and yet we are. And that certainly says something about the state of our culture. That being said, if I was running for office in Massachusetts, this would make me a little bit nervous. And not that I wouldn't answer truthfully, because I would. And if I'd been accused, I would probably say yes. If I did something wrong, admit to it. But if I was formally accused, then it was shown to be false. I just worry what will happen in our gotcha culture where, oh, he said yes, will be all that comes out and nobody will hear the rest of the story. And I'm not saying this to fault Nayral. They have plenty of faults without this one. It's not a bad question to ask candidates. I'm just saying all it takes is one person on the inside to leak out selective information that they want and this confidential survey has a lot of problems. So I I understand and I, I appreciate that they want to talk about this. For once I'm saying Nero's doing something right. Mark it on the calendar. I'm I'm fine with them asking this question. I think it's good to know have our politicians, you know, done things that they should not have. However, I just want to make sure that we're very cautious and that we hear the whole story. I mean, if it went to court and all the evidence supported um, the candidate and he did absolutely nothing wrong, um, or she, this, although it is largely, it seems to be women who experience this harassment, it certainly worked the other way as well. Um, but we just, we need to be very careful about what we do. We don't want to just, it's kind of like this. It's almost like if I was reading my Bible and I read Jesus died and I slammed my Bible shut. I said, hey, look, he died. It's over. You know, see, the Bible's false because Jesus died. If I don't know the rest of the story, then my impression is going to be entirely wrong. So, at least for me, you know, I, I appreciate their question, right? Have you been accused? And if so, please explain. Nayral is trying to give them the opportunity that, hey, look, be honest with us. Have you been accused? If you were accused and you were wrong, I mean, admit it. And we will, you know, the voters will know that, which I think is fair. And then the flip side, if you've been accused and it ultimately has no merit, 
then we should take that into consideration too. So this is important. And I think it's yeah, worth thinking about. So this article was written by Lee Zhou. Zhao, it's Z-H-O-U. I'm sorry if I mess that up. It was on May 30th, 2018, on Vox. A pro-abortion rights group is asking candidates if they've been accused of sexual harassment. Now finally, we're moving on to The Atlantic, to an article written by Seagal Samuel. And it is entitled, Atheists are sometimes more religious than Christians. Obviously a controversial title. They want people to click on it. It worked. I clicked on it. Oh, and it was published on May 31st. Now, this is fascinating, right? There's a lot of... We've talked about this before. A lot of Christians are... You know, they don't practice actively, right? And they don't really do... Um... They'll say they're Christian, perhaps, but they don't actually do anything. They don't pray. They don't go to church. They might not believe in God or the resurrection, any of that. Now, what's fascinating is that the American nuns, so these are people in America who identify as atheists, agnostics, or nothing in particular, are more religious than European nuns. Which is fascinating, right? You would think that nuns are nuns. Um, but here's a quote from Samuel. The notion that religiously unaffiliated people can be religious at all may seem contradictory. But if you disaffiliate from organized religion, it does not necessarily mean you've sworn off belief in God, say, or prayer. Now, here's the kicker, though. American nuns are as religious as, or even more religious than Christians in several European countries, including France, Germany, and the UK. Now, the researcher, Neha Sagal, highlighted the fact, this is a quote, whereas only 23% of European Christians say they believe in God with absolute certainty, 27% of American nuns say this. It, it blows my mind. If you're a Christian, you believe in God. If you're a Christian, you believe Jesus Christ died and rose again. These are fundamental beliefs of what it means to be a Christian. The fact that people are identifying in Europe as Christian but don't believe in God. And though they tried to, to build in the caveat with absolute certainty, Then they quantify that with believe. So, I mean, I do believe in God with certainty. I believe it with all I am. The question is, why, why are American nuns saying, right, that they believe in God? I mean, that seems contradictory. However, you have to remember that nun is a conglomeration of atheists, agnostics, and none in particular. So there are plenty of people who don't identify with any religion, but say, yeah, I think God's all right. I, I think he's out there. 
it makes sense that there's a higher power in the universe. So that's part of it. Um, the author Samuel also points out, America is a country so suffused with faith that religious attributes abound even among the secular. It talks about atheist churches and the church of free thought, where people come together and have church, even if they're not really um, believers, because they like the community. There was a Beyonce mass in San Francisco, where Beyonce's music was used for a communal celebration that felt a lot like a religious um, occasion. And so there's that. There's also, I mean, here's the key. The Pew survey found that although most Western Europeans still identify as Christians, for many of them, Christianity is a cultural or ethnic identity rather than a religious one. I mean, that, that's the nail on the head. And that's what we have here in America, too. We have Christians who identify as Christian, but they don't really believe any of it. They say, oh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. Well, why are you a Christian? Well, my family's Christian. I, I was brought up in the church. Um, I sang in the choir. I did this. I did that. So, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm Christian. Here in Vermont, there was a lot of talk about that among my Roman Catholic friends. Some of them, obviously, were dedicated and um, are still dedicated. But I remember in high school, a lot of people were like, oh, yeah, I'm Catholic. And it's like, well, do you go to Mass? Well, no. So are you really Catholic? Um, yeah, I, it's not to say, obviously, there aren't reasons every now and then. You're sick, you can't make it to Mass. You don't want to, you know, get the whole rest of the congregation sick. I mean, I get that. But I think you can see my point, that it really is, um, it's a question of, well, I just tell myself a Christian, well, why? Do you believe anything that Christianity believes? Well, no. See, Christianity is not an ethnic identity. It's not a cultural identity. It's an affirmation of a belief system, right? It's a religion. And as such, if you don't affirm the beliefs, you are not a Christian. Now, see, you can be an American, I think, and not espouse American ideals. I mean, Here's a simple example. How many communists live in America? A lot. Is really much about our government consistent with the communist ideology? Not really. I mean, there's aspects, right? But not... You can see where I'm going with this. You can be an American because you're from America. You don't have to ideologically agree with everything America does. To be a Christian, it is a belief system. Therefore, you need to ideologically assent to the claims of Christianity. If you don't, you fail to be a Christian. So these kinds of surveys are interesting, but I think that really the religious nuns in Europe ought to be higher. And rather than have these Christians who really don't believe in Christianity, they're functionally nuns. So this article was written by Seagal Samuel, in the Atlantic, on May 31st, atheists are sometimes more religious than Christians. Well, I hope you enjoyed the podcast this week. It, 
I think it was a little bit different, but it was fun. I enjoyed it. And hey, we'll talk again next week. Have a great week, everyone.